Hi, I'm Ryan, the In Soviet Union Shrimp Eat You rules guy. I'm Ben, the Pompadour player. I'm Helen, the Please Enjoy This Great Portent storyteller. And I'm Jared, the Pulpy Game Master. And together, we are the Starting Equipment Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about They Came From Beneath the Sea. And also a little bit about its sister games, the They Came From series. It is a collection of games from Onyx Path Publishing. They take their inspiration from the B-movie genres of like the 50s to early 90s. Specifically, we're going to be talking about They Came From Beneath the Sea. And if you can't tell, that's B-movies from the 50s. The title is in all caps. You must say it like that every time you say its name required by game law okay ryan describe the room the gentle glow of the mutated bombardier beetle lit the horizon like a false dawn as it crested the skyline the populace paused in their morning routines to watch it curl itself and spray nuclear acid across the city thankfully the thick coats of lead paint protected the majority of the inhabitants Ben, why don't you give us another image of what we could see in They Came From Beneath the Sea? God damn it, Jane. I couldn't leave you in the hands of these aqua atheist arachnids. Grabs her by the shoulders. Andy, I told you. You dig, Jane? I love you, gosh damn it. And we're going to escape this undersea hellhole together where I'm going down atomic blasters screaming as he peers around in his pressed pants and 1940s uniform. Fuck. Yes. Helen, close it out for us. Describe for us a third room from beneath the sea. In the silence all around her, Darlene's heavy breathing is amplified and distorted by the cheap tile walls of the motel bathroom. The ozone smell coming from the shorted hairdryer mingles with the acrid stench of the massive electrocuted eel monster bobbing in the tub. She sees her own reflection in the glassy saucer eyes of its weirdly human face and quickly shuts the door. Stepping briskly into the breezeway outside her motel room, she nearly collides with a member of the cleaning staff who came to investigate the power fluctuation. Darlene cuts off their questions. I'd like to speak to the manager, she says. Also, I'll need some more towels. So let's talk about the setting of They Came From Beneath the Sea. That might get obnoxious for our listeners, but I'm not going to get bored doing it. So we're here now. So there are multiple they came from games and there isn't a canon setting for them but instead each has an archetype that can be found in a specific genre of movie that genre differs depending on which game you're playing at the time of recording your options are they came from beyond the grave camp murder lake and outer space as well as of course beneath the sea As Jared already mentioned, Beneath the Sea focuses on the terribly great sci-fi movies of the 50s. Those movies focus on the uncertainty of the times, McCarthyism, mutually assured atomic destruction, and the scars of World War II are all featured themes. And in the good movies, those themes even come across. Yeah, but Beneath the Sea isn't focused on the good movies. They have their eye firmly aimed at the bad movies, the famously bad movies, the infamously bad movies. It tries to recreate the campy feel of those movies with both its tone and mechanics. 
There's a chapter of setting ideas about underwater empires of sapient sea life, and they discuss zombie Stalin being controlled by a parasitic eel. But I'm not really sure I'd say there's a proper canon for a setting, more like an inspiration section. Before we move on, Beneath the Sea satirically displays the rose-tinted world of 1950s American Romanticism. It isn't trying to explore any of the darker aspects of that time period. Racism, classism, sexism aren't expected to be an issue here. This is more of crab people disguising themselves as humans with rubber masks and sidestepping down Main Street, plant doppelgangers crawling out of the mutant pea plants in Mrs. McGregor's garden, or irradiated Gila monsters growing to gigantic size kind of game. But it's your game. Think of this more as coming from the tree of Christine McConnell. If you want to like sit and explore what it means to be human and American and leave your games having like felt some feelings and maybe be motivated to changing your world. You should look at a different game, but if you want pulpy sea monsters, this is the game for you. You're here. You're here now. You have found your home. This is the potato chip game. Yeah, this is Absolutely a potato chip game, and there is nothing wrong with that. So let's move on to our next section. What does this lever do? Pull the lever. Can I say Ludo narrative yet? Not yet. We have to go over the basic mechanics first. Fine. They came from games use the story path system. If you've ever played any kind of World of Darkness or Onyx Path game, it will look pretty familiar to you. You have attributes and skills. Most roles have you adding an attribute and a skill together, and rolling that many d10s. 8 and 9 is a success. Each 10 is 2 successes. You're looking for a target number of successes to succeed at any given roll, and that's called the difficulty of the roll. Each roll might also have complication. Complications are, well, complications to your actions that your character's trying to take. Ooh. Yeah. You can spend successes to overcome them. They won't stop you from completing your roll if you don't but they will create problems. For example, let's say your character is trying to climb a fence around a secret military base to find out what it is they irradiated this week. It's a chain leak fence, so it's pretty easy to climb. Great. Difficulty one. You need one success to get over it. However, there is razor wire at the top of this fence. Let's say that's a two-point complication. If you get one success, you climb the fence. But if you don't get at least three, you're going to have to make a decision about whether or not you want to climb the fence, but take the complication. Maybe the razor wire cuts you. Maybe it rips open your pocket and your wallet falls out. Either way, your action has caused a complication in the game. See what they did there? Ooh. Yeah. To help balance complications out, you have enhancements. Enhancements add bonus successes but only in certain situations and only if you roll at least one success to begin with. So you might be a, a karate expert, like a really good karate expert, a plus two enhancement level of karate expert. Whenever you make a role where being an expert in karate is going to help you, you get to add two successes. Punching someone would get you that bonus. Shooting a gun at them would not. And... You need to roll at least one success on your own when you punch them. So there is always the chance you can fail. The next mechanic of the game is stunts. Yes, there are abilities that let you replace your character with a stunt person on a dangerous roll, but we're not talking about that yet. All right, so after you make your roll, you can spend any extra successes after the difficulty on stunts. 
stunts let you give someone else an enhancement bonus or raise the difficulty for an antagonist action or create a complication for them. If your role benefited from your trademark, you can also take directorial control, which lets you make a change to the scene. It can't be something that's already been established and it can't contradict something that has already been stated. So you could have an alien's laser pistol run out of charge or have the sheriff show up to help, but you couldn't remove the alien's pistol once it's already been used. So if you're wondering what trademarks are, don't worry, we'll get to them in just a little bit. Stunts also give you simple powers that players can use. We are going to talk about tropes here in a minute, which are individual archetype-based powers. But stunts let everybody at the game have a small pool of abilities that they can access that are just genre-wide. For example, there's the stunt Ears Like a Bat. That allows the player to listen for the monster, and once per scene, you can use excess successes to activate that, so you ignore all penalties listening to a roll. Each They Came From game has its own set of archetypes. These are the common archetypes of protagonists from that type of movies. Beneath the Sea features the Everyman, the G-Man, the Mouth, the Scientist, and the Survivor. These are the closest to character classes that exist in this game. Each archetype has suggested skills, a trademark descriptor, and abilities called tropes. If anything, I would say if you're familiar with games that have a playbook sort of system more than a class system, this is very much like that. I do have to interject here and say that the mouth might be the worst class name I've ever heard in an RPG. Oh, I love the mouth. It's so evocative. The it's mouth. Exactly what they are. They're the mouth. But that doesn't explain really what if when you're reading it you can kind of guess well based on that list i guess that's the social character because there's no social archetype otherwise that that really stands out but yeah that, the, mouth. the mouth it is evocative if nothing else it is evocative all right so your trademark is a simple description of your character when a role comes up in game that could loosely be tied to that descriptor, you get a bonus to the roll. Tropes are abilities that let you snatch a little narrative control from the GM. While your character isn't aware that they're in a movie, you the player are and can call on the tropes of those genre films to make edits to your character's benefit. Tropes are the more serious game-changing powers of this setting. In other games, you may cast spells or jump over buildings. Here, you change the scene in stereotypically like actor diva ways. For an example, one of the everyman tropes is I don't get paid enough for this. You simply declare that they don't get paid enough for this and they leave the scene. They aren't there anymore. They aren't involved in the danger. They don't get paid enough. They came from games, as with all story path games, have a mechanic called paths. To take a step back and define what we're talking about here. The gaming company Onyx Path has two major rule systems. All of their games use one or the other. The Storyteller system is used for Chronicles of Darkness, which we talk about all the time, and Exalted, while the Story Path games are the Trinity Line, Scion, and the They Came From games. The Storyteller systems are intended to be grittier and more action-y, while the Story Path settings are supposed to be more rules-light and big picture with the rules they do address. Rules light. 
look, sometimes we fall short of our goals. Sometimes we don't accomplish the things we want to. We'll be back to discuss that later in this episode. (laughs) So paths are a collection of background skills, social contacts, and abilities. Each character gets three, and they are a major part of how you build your character. Your first one is your archetype. The other two are your origin and ambition. So there is an example list to pick from, but they also expect you to make your own. Uh, The goal is to pick options that make sense for your character story and kind of group them together in in one place. So if I made a character, I could say they're an everyman who was raised a military brat and they want to be elected president. As I'm making my character, I would pick skills for each path that would justify my character having learned that in my backstory and with what I want to accomplish um, and what I do now. Failed roles either have a consolation, which is a failing forward moment that advances the plot, or they add a resource to the pool that all players share called the writer's pool. You can pull from the writer's pool to make rewrites. Rewrites add dice to a roll and give more rolls on extended actions or activate certain abilities. We see types of meta currency like the writer's pool in other games. Players can use these to pool together for greater effects or exchange them with the game master. Sometimes they receive these meta currencies when the game master takes certain actions. They came from beneath the sea, draws from this pool to help power the cinematic elements of the game. So, for instance, fate points uh, or uh, hero points and mutants and masterminds, these sorts of things are common. Yeah. All right. So an important part of any sci-fi movie, how do you handle fighting that giant Gila monster? Uh, and the answer for that in StoryPath games is scale. It's a scale. It's a special attribute that applies when you have a contest between things at, at different levels of power. Whether you're punching that giant Gila monster, trying to outrun that greaser's hot rod, or beating that robot at chess. Those kinds of things utilize scale. Whenever you have a dice roll that involves scale, it's really simple. The character with the scale advantage gets plus two enhancement to the roll for each level of scale in difference. That difference is what important. It doesn't matter where you are on the scale chart. All that matters is the difference between where the two contestants are. Two giant monsters fighting each other with the same scale would roll like two normal people in a fist fight. But regular person versus Godzilla in a fist fight, Godzilla's got a very serious inherent advantage. You can connect this to the other story path game, Scion, where it makes an awful lot of sense that sometimes normal people don't just go toe-to-toe with the children of actual gods. To help even the odds when NPCs have scale, characters have cinematics. Anyone at the table can use these powers, and they require you to spend rewrites out of the writer's pool to do it. Cinematics really let you play with the fact that this is a B-movie. They are completely out of character and encourage you to metagame. So you can have the editors put in bad dubs over a language your character doesn't speak to learn what the aliens are plotting, or even just record over what two minor characters are saying. You can rewind the film to add a deleted scene to explain something currently happening in-game. 
You can be immune to any damage that should happen from an explosion as long as you are jumping away from it, which is maybe my favorite cinematic, you know, just the old dive into the bushes. It doesn't matter. You're free now. Well, and as you are an engineer, Jerry, you can confirm that's exactly how explosions work. Yeah. It's, no, no, do not. Yeah, that's why, that's why all OSHA signs always have the last part of as you're running out of the fire door, you're supposed to jump. You're supposed to jump as you Please do not listen to Not safe We do not endorse this. Do not endorse this. It is purely for cinematic value. I endorse it. Um, Sorry, mechanic, where you get a mechanical bonus for saying a thing once per session. You draw your quips from decks at the start of each session and try and find an appropriate or at least funny way to work them into the game. If the quip is passively executed and the quipper which is actually the real word you use in this in this circumstance. The quipper gets an additional die on the roll. I also I also like that qualifying word they use there. Passably executed. Yes. They they talk about like if there's a disagreement, how you should vote at it on the table because that's going to happen. We all. I was going to say they didn't put passably in there. <laughs> it's it's yeah. Well, they, they talk don't... about like. How you could like the party should vote to see like eh, is that yeah um the quipper gets an additional die on the roll you can use the same quip up to five times in a single session and with each use you gain excuse me each passable use you gain a stacking bonus so the second use provides two dice the third three and so on after any use of the quip you can put it back into the deck and pick another one if you're tired of it different archetypes have different decks. Huzzah! For a total of six decks. Players will pick two from their archetype-specific deck and one from any deck they choose. Don't worry if you don't want to buy the cards. You don't have to. They are also at the back of the book for easy printing and cutting up. I'll also say, just to clarify, a quip in this context is a sassy one-liner or a snappy one-liner or an intimidating one-liner. It's literally a one-liner or two-liner on a card. That's that's literally what it is. Just to clarify. My favorite is for the flirt. And it's, so what are you doing after foiling this invasion? It's my absolute favorite. Um, oh my God, I love it. And I will play Spire. Huh. <laughs> um, so on to critical hits. These are our favorite things about a setting. These are the things that this game does absolutely fantastically. Ryan, start us off. Can I say it yet? I think I can say it now. The Ludo narrative is awesome. They really commit to the game being the bad sci-fi movie. In particular, I love the cinematics. They are a great use of Ludo narrative to help pin down exactly what the writers have in mind. Spending a resource to replace your character with a stunt double so they don't get hurt is mm, chef's kiss. That's beautiful. I love that. So I also love the cinematics, but to go in a different direction, I think the relationship mechanic is at the very least an interesting one. Um, I can't entirely decide if I like it or not, but it does make you have a conversation before you even engage a player character or even an NPC about how you feel about them and how about they feel about you. It's casual, it's quick, and it works. 
and also in this game, you can do funny 1950s parody voices for characters. And I enjoy that. So I'm going to take just a step back. Uh, and, and I have to say this now so I can better explain what I have to say in botches later. But this game as a whole really does something different and fun with the genre it has chosen. It has carved out its own niche within modern urban fantasy monster hunting and work to distinguish itself by really leaning into the flavor of campy monster cinema. And anyone who has watched movies on uh, Saturday morning on the Sci-Fi Channel knows that while the default background of this game is 1950s, this structure maps just fine onto Tremors, it maps onto Evolution, it maps onto Mega Piranha. Coming up with examples for this made me realize how much of this kind of media I personally have consumed. And while I can definitely recreate that genre in, in some game of Hunter the Vigil, for instance, the They Came From series takes the extra step of adding the cinematic mechanics and it just creates something that's unique and delightful. Just unique and delightful. I'm the reason she's consumed a lot of that media. Excuse you, I just consumed a lot of that media before I met you. You just added some more and worse stuff. You're welcome. <laughs> so for me, the highlights, others have touched on this, it's the cinematics and the tropes. They're really, really fun. They make this feel like a unique game. Without them, it's just, it feels like it's just a setting that any other rule system could use. It would be so easy to make this in D20 or Fate. And it's the tropes as well as some of the unique stunts and cinematics that make this a whole game. Also, one more quip that I really, really need to share that I think they nailed. I never did care for seafood. Yeah. So good. All right. Now it's time to move on to the botches. This is where, in our humble and polite opinion, we hope, this game fails. This is the ones, this is the you trip over your own shoe and smash your face into the ground botches. Or, you know. Come on, I'm trying to make it dramatic. I said we were polite. So there are a lot of subsystems and an otherwise pretty streamlined game. You have trademark cinematic stunts, cinematics, quips, and they're all neat. I think they all work pretty well, but that's just a lot. There are a lot of things, I wouldn't say it's a complicated system, but there's just a lot of things in it. So for me, Mystery Science Theater 3000 doesn't work if the filmmakers are in on the joke. Quite frankly, I don't really enjoy the setting. I don't enjoy the framing devices that you are in a movie um, and you try and create something cheesy intentionally. I don't think it typically works that way. I could see this being a fun one or few shot and after a few drinks especially, but I could never play this as a campaign. I could never take my character seriously. My opinion kind of dovetails off of Jared's critical hit. It's not fair to call it a botch. It's just the other side of the coin when you create something that's unique. If you remove the cinematics and the quips and the elements of this that are direct parallels to the movie part of the campy monster movie, high concept, you are left with an underlying conceit that other games do at least as well or better and that you already know the mechanics of. You play this game because of 
those movie elements. And if you're not a fan of that style or that implementation, this really isn't your game. So for me, I do enjoy this game. Unlike Ben, I actively want to play this game. I love Sharknado. I love Piranha. I love all of these things. And I want to do that in my gaming life. But, and here's the but, it's a pretty big one. This feels like a half a game to me. Maybe this gets at what Helen was saying a little bit, maybe not. But this really feels like I'm just playing Chronicles of Darkness or Hunter. And oh yeah, we added a couple pages of like genre pump, genre pulp rules. It feels more like a setting than a whole game to me. I would have loved to have seen ambiance rules or something of like, like every location the monster visits, it becomes more likely the world notices and panic breaks out. Maybe the monster gets stronger every step on this path, or you have rules that do things like make you go swim alone in the piranha infested water, or you leave the door unlocked when you have your scientific sample so the monster sneaks up on you. I don't know. I love the idea of this game, but I really wish they had leaned into its pulpiness like all the way on the dial up to a 10. And I feel it's at like probably a four right now. I think I would also just insert that like part of that, and this is where the rules light comes into play. They have rules and they have systems for places where, I don't know, maybe in my opinion, it didn't necessarily need that much focus. And then they leave much more up to the table. Because you can at any point say, well, my character decides to go skinny dipping with this other character in the water that all of us know that the swamp thing is in, but the character doesn't know that. You know, like, but you're all creating those moments as part of the metagame, there isn't necessarily anything inherent in the mechanics to direct or guide in that direction. That's what I'm saying. When I'm playing a game, I want the the game system itself to really push the fantasy that it is espousing. If I'm playing Exalted, right? A game where you're a divinely powered superhero, I want to do superhero shit. I want to take out 200 regular people with a half dozen swings of my ridiculously sized golden hammer and then give a speech that makes the whole country sing my praises and throw a that guy rocks parade, right? When I play a camping movie, I want every single thing in the system to ooze camp. I want to have rules for your wig falling off or for your, you know, there's a power where an enemy grabs your arm to take away your knife and oops, there's a continuity error where the two scenes don't line up and your knife is actually in the other hands, right? Like I will say that there is rules for wig falling off in that one of the cinematics is you interact with the set in some way. Sure, sure. You could totally have that be an example. I just want more of that. Like those are the things that are exciting. So much of the initial mechanics section is discussing, you know, mechanics. And then I think a comparatively smaller portion is discussing the cinematics. And the cinematics are the exciting and interesting part. Or are the original part. Yeah. 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 All right. It's time to move on. It is time for story hooks. For our story hooks, those who haven't listened to us do a review episode this season, uh, we're each going to say basically what game or game idea seed 
we would all like to play if we were playing in this. Ryan, start us off. I want to take the plot from a serious classic sci-fi movie, like The Day the Earth Stood Still or Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and run it in this game as though they had massive budget cuts and see what comes out the other side. So you want to play the faculty? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, kind of. Good reference, too. You're welcome. I love that movie. It's so bad, but I love that movie. (laughs) So I like the idea of catfish have just randomly begun lobbing ordinance from the local lake, uh, seeming to push back certain housing and retail centers. But you don't really have a good understanding of why. And so, yeah, I want to I want to start there, figure out what what the catfish deal is, why they've decided to revolt against these specific communities and what nefarious developers are paying them to do it. Can we ally ourselves with the catfish in your game? Yes. Yes, you can. All right. Not all. That seems almost inevitable. Uh, yeah. um, I can make references to frogs. Wow. <laughs> Let's let that one die. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Helen, what's yours? What's your story hook? I've actually thought of another since we were sitting here, but my point is you can play this in a campaign if you want to, but I feel it really does best with with one shots or with few shots. And what better homage to the original material than a series of distantly related one or few shots in the same universe? You can have sequels with the same characters and then subsequent sequels from later decades with some new characters and the odd cameo as the original actors get older or the studio can't afford them. Prequel thrown in there somewhere. Another random sequel that's only barely attached and you slap in space on there for good measure for some reason. Carry it through each of the they came from settings, you know, as it you, you end up with these sudden and jarring tone shifts from your original sequence. So like watching the original Godzilla that was released in Japan and then watching All Monsters Attack with the dangerously short shorts. Embrace it. Like, have fun with the medium. Make Critters set it. Like, just do it. I want to play the abandoned sewer crocodile slash alligator game. Like, I want the game where one too many children thought alligators made cute pets and flushed them down the toilet. They have mutated and are back for revenge. That's the game I want. My last one. I want to run one where I get to correct the record on bad science in other bad sci-fi movies using chains of logic and where they fall apart that were the underlying premise in those bad sci-fi movies that I spent the whole time I was watching them yelling about. That's what I want. I mean, I think that would be a lot of fun. We're starting with Arctic Blast. That's what we're doing. We're starting with Arctic Blast. All right. So now we're going to close out with a new segment we have added this season called One in Five, where someone, usually Ryan, is going to describe a short game in five minutes for us. Just a little mini review for something that isn't a long enough game to need a whole hour review, but we think that you would enjoy. Ryan, what's our One in Five for today? Today's One in Five is Errant. It's a very old school game uh, with lots of rule frameworks, but not that many specific rules in place. So it's meant to be very fast, very simple, wacky, and 
also a little bit of grim. It's put out by Kill Jester and was recently released from their Kickstarter. So this is very original D&D kind of style. There are four classes. The classes are the Violent, the Deviant, the Occult, and the Zealot. I'm going to read you the very, very brief introductory to the game. You are a failure. You have no home. You have no job. You have no friends. You have no family. You have no prospects. What you do have are a particular set of skills, the kind that make respectable folks avoid you, a handful of pennies, and a suitably blithe disregard for your own life. You can select languages such as the bitter sexual tension between foes. Uh, you start with the failed profession on a random keepsake such as a bucket full of crabs, the flu, or a jar of pungent pickled eggs. Just so you know, you're describing working modern customer service. <laughs> anyway, continue. Yeah, that's fair. That's, yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like it's the mix of modern customer service and 1980s D&D. And that is a beautiful abomination. Yeah. And it's the second thing that's been mentioned tonight that makes me want to play Spire. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, in case you haven't picked up on it so far, uh, a big conceit of the game is being an adventurer is incredibly dangerous. Uh, so you should figure out what kind of person you are that decides this is worth the risk. I'll take that because there's a very good chance you'll die and horribly never seeing the light of day again. But there's also a chance that you'll come back with more money than you've ever seen. And that's a core part of your character. So one of the really nice things about this is it is very streamlined. Very brief overview of classes here. The Violent, they have special combat maneuvers they can do. They're your fighters. The Deviant uh, are thieves or professionals. Uh, they have better skills than everyone. The Occult are your sorcerers. They make and find grimoires, which aren't necessarily books. They're items, uh, spell component kind of things. And have weird... Magic makes you weird in this game. And the Zealot. The Zealot are your clerics, but... They're very clear in this game. The zealots aren't the clerics who, like, you know, you go to see them when you're sick in town and they, they cure your disease. They're the clerics who, like, wander out from the woods with, like, blood pouring down their eyes and try and tell everyone they've seen the face of God. Feral wilderness prophet kind of Feral stuff. Feral wilderness prophets, the churches don't like them. They're problematic for them. Uh, that's the kind of game here. It's a little niche, but I think it's enjoyable and it's at least worth the read. It definitely digs into like really thinking from a sociological perspective about the core conceit of Dungeons and Dragons type games. Like these are just people who go around just murdering other sapient peoples and taking their shit and we are all okay with that. And also, what incredibly horrible world it would be! Like, you know, we don't we don't go in that forest. Um, monsters live there, uh, and we don't go to that ruined tower over there too, because a wizard used to live there, and we're pretty sure monsters live there too, and there might be cursed with the monsters. You just send these groups of people out who do not belong in society, and they just go, you know, 
kill monsters, and occasionally blow out your economy by bringing back all that lost gold. They have rules for that. <laughs> it's important to have rules for that. Woof. All right, Ryan, take us out. All right, well, I'm Ryan. In Soviet Union, shrimp eats you, rules guy. I'm Ben, the Pompadour player. I'm Helen, the please enjoy this great portent storyteller. And I'm Jared, the pulpy game master. And together, we're the Starting Equipment Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Come find the fun and the magic we make with the stories told in this world we create. So come down, it's only right.